reading from Joshua chapter 6 and verses 1 through 5. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in, and the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, we know it is an inspired word. It is a word intended for our edification, and I pray that you would enable me to faithfully preach it, and uh, we as your people to grow through it. We commit this time continuing uh, desiring to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the years, uh, and usually I do read commentaries many years before I preach on a series, but I've read many, many, many commentaries on on uh, this um, book, and almost every commentary notes that the language and the structure of Joshua 6 distinguishes this battle against Jericho from every other battle that follows. Now, I can't this morning get into the structure. I love structures of books, uh, but I think it would be really heavy for uh, me to preach on this morning. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you some, some hints. Four of several odd features in this chapter that show that this whole event was, believe it or not, was intended to be a ceremony of worship, teaching, and foundational trust in God. You can peruse all of the commentary. You're, you're going to see there's a common consensus on this as marching around Jericho was supposed to be an act of worship. Okay, the first oddity is the central place of the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 6. Uh, commentators point out that this ought to appear to the reader to be ultra-odd because the Ark of the Covenant was not supposed to go into battle. In fact, the only other time that it did, God was displeased, and he had the Ark uh, captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 4 uh, through 5. Now here, it is commanded and... Uh, in case you think there's a contradiction in the Scripture, there is no contradiction. Numbers 4 and Numbers uh, chapter uh, 10 both say that when the ark and the people were traveling, which is what they're doing right now, they would take down the tabernacle, they would cover the ark, and it would go before them to find God's next resting place. And so that's what's happening here, and there's sim symbolism here that Canaan as a whole was going to be the resting place for Israel, is going to be the resting place for God. But they're traveling, so there's no contradiction. But uh, commentators point out that the centrality of the ark shows that this whole event was an act of worship and covenant symbolism. And when you understand the central things that the ark represented, you will see it's very appropriate uh, symbolism if it was commanded by God, obviously. Uh, first of all, the ark was the pledge or the guarantee of God's presence with his covenant people. He wanted that to be highlighted. Without God's presence, they could not have success uh, in taking the whole land. Now, interestingly, 
Every time that they took down the tabernacle, they picked up stakes to travel, which was the case here, uh, they would say this uh, before the ark, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, let those who hate you flee before you. Uh, God wanted to symbolize uh, this during the first battle, or trust must be in the Lord. Second, since the first five books of the Bible, the law of God, were stored in a compartment on the side of the of the ark. The ark symbolized that God's word, the Bible, was to be the foundation for everything that they were going to be doing from here on in. Third, since the ark was called God's throne and symbolized his authority and his rule over Israel and all that they did, and since it was placed at the center of this procession, it's saying God's rule needs to be at the center of everything that they did. And then fourth, since the ark was also called a mercy seat, it symbolized not only God's judgments, but it symbolized the mercies of God that were being offered. There was an entire week where not only judgment was being threatened, but mercy was being offered. And uh, we'll be looking at the, the, the significance of that uh, during that time. So any people like Rahab and her family that were spared, they had to completely ditch their identity with Canaan. They had to defect and submit to the true God of, uh, uh, of Israel, uh, Zion's king, Jehovah, and Israel itself was standing in that mercy. And so the first oddity was the presence of the ark. Because God commanded it to be present here, everything symbolized by the ark was placed into very high view. And I'll make some, some applications from that later, but it's, it's an oddity we need to understand. The second odd thing is that jubilee language is used throughout. Uh, for example, the shofar ram's horns, you know, those curly Q things, were being blown uh, during the entire time that they're circling around um, uh, Jericho. And this was one of the things, this was not the silver trumpets of war, this was associated with the year of Jubilee and with worship at the tabernacle. But there's many other, and I won't get into all of them, many other symbols of Jubilee. What was Jubilee about? Well, Jubilee was the time when there was to be the return of the land to its rightful owners. And so Jericho is a kind of symbolic first fruits of the whole land being returned to a holy use under God. The third odd thing mentioned by commentators is the repeated use of the number seven, which symbolically anticipates Israel's future rest. And the number seven factors into this passage massively. And, uh, some of the commentaries spent two pages. I finally found a commentary that summarized it pretty, pretty succinctly. And so let me, uh, let me read from the Hellwiss Bible commentary. They say, the number seven is crucial to the events of the plot. The Israelites are to march seven times around Jericho with seven priests carrying seven trumpets. Michael Vandermeer notes seven distinct utterances in the chapter, seven instances of the verb savav, to surround or encircle seven instances of the word raw, to shout or to raise a trumpet blast, and 14, that is seven times two occurrences of the noun trumpets. Some have heard here echoes of the seven days of creation, which might suggest that God, the God who goes before Israel's troops is indeed the Lord of all the earth. And that brings up the fourth oddity that uh, commentators have noted. Everyone, without exception, acknowledges that um, at least one of the seven days that they're marching around Jericho had to have occurred on a Sabbath day. And they say, 
that seems so contrary to what you're supposed to be doing on the Sabbath. What's going on here? And uh, uh, even worse, there is overwhelming evidence that when they circled the city seven times on the seventh day and then they went in and destroyed the people, that was actually on the Sabbath. This is the view of all of the ancient uh, Jewish interpreters. There's a lot of evidence. I'll give you just some hints myself here. And, um, and people are just like, why would God do that? Now, the Maccabees and several Reformed military leaders down through history have used this passage to justify uh, engaging in battle on the Sabbath, and I think that's the most literal application you can make. It's a very legitimate application uh, that can be uh, made here. But um, uh, uh, Joshua and the other godly leaders, as they're uh, taking the land of Canaan, they tried wherever it was possible to avoid fighting on the Sabbath if they could. Yet here, it seems as if God goes out of his way to make sure that they are going to conquer Jericho on the Sabbath day. It's a very deliberate act of symbolism. Now, let me explain how the days fall out. Uh, when we were in chapter 5, we saw that uh, this theophany of God the Son, pre-incarnate God the Son, appeared to Joshua on Sunday. It was after Passover on the festival of first fruits, right? So it appeared on, on Sunday. Uh, my chronology dictates that. Virtually all of the ancient uh, commentators and rabbis believed that. And that means day one of circling the city was Sunday. You count forward, that means day seven was the Sabbath, their Saturday. Uh, this was uh, the interpretation, again, of all the ancient uh, rabbis. And this means that the destruction of Jericho took place on a day that seems to many people to be ultra-odd. God was authorizing a massive amount of work on a rest day. Now, there's a reason for it. God was very deliberately structuring all of this ch uh, chapter with a symbolic teaching in mind. And we'll look at that later, but it also shows this whole event was an act of, wor of worship. Uh, that's really the strangest part of this. They were starting the conquest of Canaan by looking to God's provision by worshiping. God was making it clear his law and his grace must be the foundation of their conquest, and they have to start with worship. And we'll get into that a little bit more as well. But I just wanted to start off by making sure that you understood uh, there are some oddities in this chapter, and these are four of several. Those four things tightly are connected to their faith, which is the central theme of the whole chapter. Hebrews 11 uh, talks about this defeat of uh, Jericho, that the people, uh, this was a faithful generation. The people had faith, and the walls came down by faith. And so today I want to focus most of my teaching on why these five verses point to four aspects of faith. We're going to look at the need for faith, foundation for faith, the tests of faith, and the results of faith. First of all, we see a beautiful description of the need for faith. And I think this is rather obvious in every phrase. Uh, first, God starts his war with Jericho, not with tiny little AI, you know, let's get a small battle and give them confidence. No, he starts with the impossible uh, Jericho. It's saying something. Uh, this was perhaps the most fortified city in all of Canaan, which is saying something. Because the spies in Deuteronomy 128 said, all the cities are great and fortified up to heaven. All of the cities had incredibly high walls, incredibly strong fortifications. 
So if Jericho was the most fortified of those cities because it stood as the gateway into Canaan, it must have been a formidable city to tackle indeed. And so it highlights the need for faith. But verse 1 goes on. Now Jericho was securely shut up. Now he's not referring to what the Canaanites thought or what some Israelites thought that it's secure. No, this is the inspired text. This is God's opinion. Uh, It was indeed securely shut up. And so if, if God himself thinks this is unbelievably secure. It's going to take a miracle to make it unsecure. God alone can do this. Um, and um, uh, in Hebrews 11.30 it says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. It took faith in his almighty power. So obviously it's not secure against God. The text only in- indicates it was secure against Israel and sadly the New King James uh, translation obscures this a little bit. It says, now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. There's actually no because in the, the Hebrew. It's an interpretation. The literal word that was mistranslated as because is actually from before the face of. It's mipne, from before the face of. It was securely shut up from before the face of the children of Israel. They couldn't get in. They could not breach the wall. So God is making it clear. This is an absolute impossibility from a human perspective. Okay? They needed faith in God's power to accomplish what God has commissioned them to accomplish. And here's the thing. God loves to bring impossibilities into our lives to force us to live by faith. Your impossibility may be overcoming some besetting sin that you've tried and tried to get over. It may be a demonic stronghold. It may be a financial situation. It may be a a wandering child. It just seems impossible uh, for us to... Uh, see God answering, and you look at your personal Jericho and you say, wow, there is no way. This is impossible. This is so secure against any kind of redemption. Uh, It's uh, secure before our face, the literal Hebrew, but it's not secure against God's power working through us. It's simply a call to faith. You know, need is not a bad thing. Need drives us to faith, right? Amen? Uh, Let's not look at our needs as reasons to be discouraged. They are simply calls to faith. Now, verse 1 ends with one more indication of the need. It added that none went out and none came in. It was securely shut up so that people couldn't escape the city, couldn't enter the city. It was now closed to man completely. And Hebrews 11 uses this and many other impossible situations to explain that faith is needed when we cannot do what we're commanded to do in our own strength. We should always live by faith, but God many times trains us to live by faith by giving impossible calls into our lives. Maybe an impossible call to overcome fear, some other negative uh, attitude within, or an impossible call to do something we can't afford to do. But as we obey in faith, we see God miraculously coming through. You know, our kids grew up seeing miracle after miracle happening, especially in the Davenport home. Uh, and as they saw God coming through on impossible situations that we would gather as a family and pray, it gave them faith to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for God. So again, don't look at your needs as reasons to despair. Look at your needs as reasons to trust God. The faith that Hebrews 11 calls us to have is the same faith that enabled Moses and Israel to cross the Red Sea on dry land, that enabled Rahab and her family to trust God rather than fighting against God. Every time a person comes to faith, it's the same faith. 
It's an impossibility that they are trusting because they got fears as well. Um, it's um, a faith that enabled Gideon, Barak, and David to win spectacular wars. But Hebrews 11 says, hey, that same faith enabled people to believe God for healing and uh, to uh, trust in God and not cave in when they are beaten with rods and when, even when they die, dying by faith. I mean, all of these things Hebrews talks about are opportunities to grow in faith. So refuse to despair in the face of your Jerichos. But in verse 2, we have a qualification, and it's a very, very important qualification. You don't just dive into impossible situations because somebody else did. You don't dive into impossible situations because you think, hey, I need to test my faith. No, you dive into impossible situations because God has called you and he has promised to come through for you. Okay, otherwise we're tempting God when we dive into impossible situations. This is exactly what Satan tempted Jesus to do. Uh, he, he said, you trust God. Well, just jump off of this uh, temple roof and see if his angels will catch you. Remember that, right? Satan quotes scripture. He quoted Psalm 91:12 to Jesus, in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. He's basically saying, hey, if that scripture is true, you can trust God, jump off of the roof. See if his angels will catch you. And you know what Jesus responded? He quotes another scripture to say, no, no, no. That would be tempting God, not following God. God had not called him to jump off of a roof, right? And so we don't do impossible things just because we think, hey, cool, and other impossible things. We do it because God has called us to and has promised that we will... Uh, that he will uh, come through on our behalf. So make sure that the promise you are claiming is a promise being made to every believer, that it's a legitimate promise you can claim. And that's the first sub-point. Uh, first, notice how verse 2 starts. And the Lord said to Joshua, this is a historical promise being made to a historical man. Joshua, this promise does not guarantee that every military man who uh, goes and conquers a city is going to be able to conquer that city. This was a promise made to Joshua, right? But there are principles given here that always apply. When God does make a promise to us, we can act on it with the same confidence that Joshua did. And he has given you a lot of commands, and he's given you a lot of promises that you perhaps uh, don't have faith to follow through on. He has commanded you to conquer your various sinful habits and addictions and bad attitudes. And so this means you cannot take the attitude, woe is me, I'm a sinner, there's no way that I could do this, uh, and use it as an excuse to not live by faith. There are some of the prayers for confession that sometimes make me wince because these prayers are a flat-out denial of the Reformed doctrine of definitive sanctification. By the way, not all of the prayers in Valley of Vision uh, have the faith of uh, reformed doctrine of definitive sanctification. John Murray's written on this, Robert Rayburn. There's a number who have. But um, definitive sanctification means that at the moment of... Yes, there's progressive sanctification. We're gradually growing. But at the moment of our conversion, we have been set apart from the world. We've been given a new identity. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We have new authority. Uh, he has given us uh, kingdom power. And so uh, we need to act as though we are victors through Christ. Take the attitude of Paul when he says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Romans 8.37. Or when he said, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14. Now, we're always going to have more metaphorical cities that we have to take on, right? Uh, even after Joshua finished conquering the land, he left some enemies because he knew we needed to always be battling. And so uh, even many generations later, they're still battling. So till we die, we're going to be called to battle against sin. But hey, there needs to be a ton of junk you've already conquered in your life. We need to conquer one city, move on to another city, keep conquering those metaphorical cities or sins that are in our lives. But your identity is a saint. That's what you, um, the moment you have been set apart to Christ in salvation. You're not a sinner. You sin, but you are a saint. You've been set apart. So when God has given a promise to you, you can bank on it just as much as Joshua banked on this unique promise. And notice the impossible thing that is being promised to Joshua. Verse 2 goes on to say, See, I've given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. This is not just a promise that they're going to be able to bypass Jericho and uh, Jericho is not going to be able to stop them from conquering the rest of the land. No, they're going to take on Jericho and they're not just going to uh, kill a few soldiers here and there. He has promised that they're going to wipe out everybody in that city. It's a completely defeated city. And we too should not settle for killing a few sins here and there. We should go after everything in our lives that God hates. Now, will you be 100% successful? No, until we die, there are going to be some thoughts and some motives that don't line up. But after years of fighting, you certainly should have victory over a lot of junk in your life. Don't stop fighting till God's call is finished. Take seriously, again, the doctrine of definitive sanctification that promises things will be different. They will. But there's one more feature of verse 2 that gave Joshua confidence. Uh, Donald Madvig says, the tense of the verb past perfect in English, indicates that the battle has already been won. In other words, he didn't say, I will give you, but I have given you. I mean, this is so certain in God's mind that uh, Jericho is going to be defeated that he can act as if it's already an accomplished fact. You know, in God's mind, it is determined. It will happen with certainty. And we should have the same confidence with the things that God has directly commanded us to be involved in. Though God didn't make this promise concerning Jericho to you or me, he has made hundreds of other promises that we can bank on. And if God has made a promise, we should stand on it with the absolute certainty of faith. Don't waver, don't doubt, believe it, act upon it. And of course, action is involved in the next major point. God gives five tests of faith in verses 3 through 5, and I believe these continue to be tests of faith for us today. First of all, there was the time test. Now, this was not a huge time test. Postmillennialism, I think, passes the time test big time because people say, why would you believe that God's going to give Christ the victory over the whole world? Look at, look, look at all of the evil that's around. We don't worry about time. We know God's promises will be accomplished, right? This is only having to wait seven days, but still, people get discouraged in a period of seven days, don't they? Verse 3 says, you shall march... Around the city, all you men of war, you shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. Now, why do I call it a test? It's because he didn't give them victory on day one. He made them wait. Uh, he deliberately sets things up to test their faith. Will they continue to believe after, quote-unquote, uselessly walking around the city, marching around the city, day after day, then going back to their camp, and nothing's happening? They're just marching. What are they doing this for? 
Uh, they might not have understood what, what they, why they were doing what they were doing. Uh, God had his uh, reasons. He didn't have to tell them what reasons uh, he had. Uh, I think in hindsight, uh, we can see some of those reasons. It appears he had symbolic reasons, but he also had practical reasons. Uh, Douglas Redford gives a guess on some practical reasons. He says this, What was the point of all this marching? God did not explain, but we may suppose that these actions served to create a sense of panic and foreboding within the residents of Jericho. Probably they would not sleep well at night as they wondered about that army marching outside their walls each day. On the seventh day, they would grow more apprehensive as the marching went on and on and on. By the time the walls came down, they would have been weakened by a week of fitful sleep and daily anxiety. So their defense was not what it might have been when the Israelite soldiers stormed the city. Perhaps, too, it was a lesson to Israel. What good is marching around a walled city? None, if that is all there is. But when their marching was an act of obedience to God, it was extremely valuable. This method may have been chosen for the same reason God later chose to deliver Israel through Gideon and only 300 men. Quote, in order that Israel may not boast against me that their own strength had saved her. Judges 7, 2. Now, I, I thought that was so good. Uh, Donald Madvig suggests one other possible reason. He says the senseless marching may have completely demoralized the defenders who would have been totally confused about what was going on, but we must not overlook the possibility that the march around the city was another expression of God's grace giving the people one last opportunity to repent. Now, you may not think that that could possibly be because God had commanded all of the residents to be destroyed, right? But here's the thing. God is the giver of faith. He was the one who gave Rahab and her family faith, and they were spared from judgment. Later, he would give the Gibeonites a faith, and they would be spared. The fact that God did not give anyone else here faith and repentance, which are flip sides of the same coin, right? The fact he did not give anyone else faith and repentance does not deny the fact that wherever faith and repentance are present, there will be a relenting from judgment. And let me just give you one scripture as an example. Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And so the point is, they're, they're worthy of judgment, but why would God offer mercy? I think it really is a legitimate uh, a possibility. God is offering both judgment and mercy to, to Jericho. Doesn't matter how much time passes, we see nothing. Faith looks to the Lord for grace. If God had given Jericho faith like he gave Nineveh faith, they would have been saved. Jonah knew that, right? He knew that God is a gracious God. And so it's not just God's law and God's kingship. It's called a mercy seat that's marching around there. So I, I really do think he has a legitimate point. His mercy seat being a part of this march was both an offer of mercy and a declaration of judgment, both grace and law. And so God had his purposes in making them wait. But even if we don't understand the purposes for God's delayed answers in our lives, we can trust God. We persevere, we continue to believe day after day that God will fulfill his promise. Now, I also put in there that this was a religious test, and I see that in the first sentence of verse 4. 
It says, And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Now, by religious test, I mean that they're applying their religion to everything that they are doing, including war. Verse 4 mentions priests, ram's horns, and the ark going before them. Commentators say those are decidedly non-combat items. Priests did what? They offered prayers on behalf of God's people. They, uh, you know, aided in, in the worship of God's people. Ram's horns were not the silver horns uh, uh, of war. They were the shofar horns used to call people to worship. And I've already mentioned the symbolism of the ark. So these three nouns are all related to worship at the tabernacle. They were worshiping as they marched around Jericho and then when they returned to their tents. I know it may seem strange, Commentators point out there's so many things in the text necessitate. This was an act of worship. Now, why were they doing that in a war context? And for me, the answer is that God was making it crystal clear that their religion had to impact everything that they did. This was not a Sunday, well, in their case, a Saturday go-to-meeting Christianity. It was a 24-7 Christianity, right? God's throne was at the center of their lives. God's mercy seat was at the center of what they were doing. God's law was being symbolically carried in their midst. Aaron's rod was in that, in that ark. So God's leadership, the bowl of manna, symbolized his communion. And it all symbolized the fact that faith doesn't trust in armies. It doesn't trust in our own arms. Faith trusts God to use those means. And we worship and praise God in all that we do. Okay, so if that's the meaning, let's apply this. Do you bring the priestly means of prayer to your farming your cleaning, your child rearing, and everything else that you do? Do you bring God's throne and his lordship over your violin practice, Kaylee and Kenzie, uh, over your games of Scrabble and everything else that you do? Are your games and labors consistent with God's grace, his leadership, and close communion with the Holy Spirit? If they are not, you should ditch them. There are some games that I do not think honor the Lord. Just imagine yourself worshiping God, watching some of the movies, the crazy movies that people watch, and say, is this really honoring to the Lord? Could you have Jesus sitting there in the living room with you when you were doing that? If not, don't do it. Ditch it. If Jesus can't be with you right there, enjoying that with you, ditch it. Whether you can worship God in everything you are doing is a test of faith. Your sexual life with your spouse should be able to be done with prayer and praise to God if it is holy. This is what I mean by the religious test. Faith lives all of life by depending upon God with a constant awareness of God's presence and approval. Hebrews 11 applies faith to Sarah's conception, verse 11. Well, she obviously engaged in that act of intimacy with faith. Hebrews 11 says she did. It applied faith to the parents of Moses, illegally hiding Moses from the authorities. Verse 23, well, that means there are some calls to civil disobedience that are acts of worship, their faithfulness to God. Our religion must be lived out 24-7. And so this religious test, I think, is an important one. Uh, some people just have a fake Sunday go-to-meeting faith that has very little relevance to the rest of their lives. Now, the next couple of phrases in verses 4 through 5 show us the homework or the action test. It says, but the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and then he gives them some other homework actions. God gave them this homework, then he said, if you do this, I'm going to give you a promised outcome. Okay? 
They didn't have to understand all God's purposes for their homework. They might have wondered, why? What's the point of all of this marching? What's the point of blowing horns and shouting at impenetrable walls? That seems kind of stupid. But they didn't question God. They just needed to know that if God calls for work to be done before the promise is fulfilled, they're going to do their homework, and they're going to do it in faith. I always give biblical homework, and so do the foxes and others who have been trained in counseling. We give biblical homework uh, for addictions and other tough problems, and sometimes I even make them sign a statement that they will do their homework. It's a test. It's a sign of genuine faith that acts rather than counterfeit faith that says, oh, God's the only one that acts. I, I, I need somebody else to, to help me on this. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Notice the homework in that phrase, those who diligently seek him. Diligence, okay? Faith requires action. You're not going to get over your problems if you don't have diligence in your homework, period. And in Hebrews 11, you see God giving homework after homework to those who are believing his promises. Don't waste my time in counseling if you're not willing to do your homework. I'll just tell you up front. I've told a number of people this. Don't waste the fox's time in counseling that they're devoting into your life or the duff's time that they're devoting into your life if you're not willing to do God-ordained homework. Verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So his homework was to prepare an ark. Verse 8 says, Abraham left his paganism behind. His faith was shown in a radical breaking of his social ties. In verse 11, God promised Sarah a baby when she was quite old. Well, that's not going to happen without doing you know what. (laughs) That was her homework, right? It was a part of obedience of faith. She did it in faith. Verse 33 and following shows all kinds of homework required for the specific things those saints were believing. Through faith they subdued kingdoms. Are they involved? Obviously, yes. Worked righteousness, became valiant in battle. Without actions consistent with faith, our faith is a counterfeit. I love A.W. Pink's uh, comments on how tightly knit together trust and action must be. Now, some people have accused A.W. Pink of being a hyper-Calvinist. That is absolutely false, and I think this quote shows it to be false. He says this, The gracious declaration that God had given Jericho into the hand of Israel did not discharge them from the performance of their duty, but was to assure them of certain success in the same. That principle operates throughout in the accomplishment of the divine purpose. The truth of election is not revealed in order to license a spirit of fatalism, but to rejoice our hearts by the knowledge that the whole of Adam's race is not doomed to destruction, nor are the elect mechanically delivered from destruction apart from any action of theirs. For though they be chosen to salvation, yet it is through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Unless the truth be embraced by them, no salvation would be theirs, for he that believeth shall be damned. Likewise, the revealed truth that Christ will yet see the travail of his soul and be satisfied, Isaiah 53, that all that the Father giveth him shall come to him, John 6, 37, does not render needless the preaching of the gospel to every creature, for that preaching is the very means which God has appointed and which the Holy Spirit makes effectual in drawing unto Christ those for whom he died. We must not divide what God has joined together. 
It is the sundering of those things which God has connected, wherein he has made the one dependent upon the other, which has wrought so much evil and caused so many useless divisions among his people. For example, in the twin truths of divine preservation and Christian perseverance, you know those two, right? God's going to preserve us, but we must persevere. If we don't persevere, God's not preserved us. They're both dependent, right? Our assurance of glorification is in, in no wise sets aside the need for care and caution, self-denial and striving against sin on our part. Okay, let's move to the next point. <clears throat> I couldn't think of a better term uh, for the next point. Of faith. I just called it the embarrassment test. Embarrassment many times reveals a fake faith. Now look at what they are to do after all of this marching and even before they see God take one single action, starting part way through verse 4. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. So God promises to come through when they do that. But doubts could have easily made them think, yeah, yeah, but what if nothing happens? And we're going to look like fools in the eyes of the Canaanites if nothing happens after we shout. You, 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 you can imagine these niggling doubts that would co could come into their mind. We might be the laughingstock of the world. There was nothing in these instructions that could be proved by science. Nothing. But if you'd ask Joshua, so why are you doing this? Nobody in the history of the world has done this. God told me to. That's enough for him, and it should be enough for us. Don't try to make Paul's statements about men's and women's role relationships acceptable to the feminists of the world. The world doesn't care. They don't, they're not going to accept uh, what the Bible has to say. And if you long for the approval of the world in academics or among feminists or whoever, your longing is actually fighting against your faith. Don't try to question God's straightforward statements that the world was made in six days just because academics and brilliant people out there say it was billions of years of death and suffering. And you're thinking, oh man, I don't want to be looked like a, as a fool if I say that it's made in six days. No, faith is driven more by what God thinks than what the world thinks. And if you are constantly driven, embarrassed by the statements of Scripture, you are not walking by faith. You have failed the embarrassment test. Too many Christian politicians have failed the embarrassment test. And Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Mark 8, 38. The embarrassment test. I think it's a very important test. Last test was the preparedness test. Verse 5 goes on to say, then the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So they were circling the city because the moment the walls fell, it didn't matter whether they were on the east side or the opposite side of the city, all they had to do was move forward and they could penetrate into the city. If they had not obeyed God, they were not circling the city and uh, there were gaps, there would have been many Jerichoites who could have fled where there were no Israelites in that place, right? And so... They were prepared. James Montgomery Boyce uh, said, I was in a meeting in which a pastor was reporting on the revivals that had been taking place in the South American country of Argentina. That country 
is wide open to the gospel and tens of thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ regularly in large open-air meetings. What is so striking about this revival, as it was related to me, is the preparation that had been made for it as long as 20 years before. At that time, the leaders of the Argentinian church began to pray for revival and ask themselves what they should do to prepare for the blessing they were asking God to send. Where would they put the people they were asking to be converted? How could they disciple the anticipated additions to the church? Their plan was to train leaders for greatly and to establish strong Christian homes in which counseling and discipleship could be done. So they were prepared for God to answer their prayer, basically. What about you? It was precisely because Noah believed God would bring a flood that he spent a hundred years preparing that ark. He prepared for the flood. It not only demonstrated the previous point of action, it demonstrated he was doing what he could to make sure his family benefited from the promise. Now, to the unbelievers at that time, that preparation would have made him a laughingstock. But faith prepares for what it expects, and it is not diverted by the opinions of men. The Canaanites in Jericho no doubt laughed at the Israelites as they fruitlessly marched around Jericho for seven days. And even though the Canaanites didn't like being cooped up, they didn't like the fact that the Israelites had taken all of their food from the storage uh, uh, places, they probably thought it was pretty ridiculous, pretty stupid for these people to just be marching around an impenetrable uh, city. But Israel believed the walls would fall, and they were ready for that answer. According to Hebrews 11.30, it was their marching around the city seven days that was a demonstration of their faith, and their faith was rewarded. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. George Guthrie defines faith this way. True faith is action taken in response to the unseen God and His promises. That's only a part of the definition of faith, but I like that. True faith is action taken in response to the unseen God and His promises. Now let's take a look at a few promises of Scripture and test ourselves and see if we're really living by faith. John 16, 24 says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask and you will receive. Do you believe that? Well, if you do, you'll spend more time in prayer. The very act of praying demonstrates whether you have faith or not, but beyond praying, you'll make preparations for God's answer. So if you're praying for a baby, you're going to go get a second hand or some kind of a, a baby crib, you know, and you're going to adjust your budget, your financial, because, hey, I'm praying and I'm expecting God to answer, so you type, start taking the steps to, uh, to m move things forward. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Now, if you believe that, you're going to start thanking God, say, Lord, I have no idea why everything is so messed up around me, but I know you're going to be bringing good out of this. Your word has said so. I remember the first time that I, I think I was 19 or 20, when I first became convinced of this, and I started getting very excited, uh, even in stressful situations like getting into a, a traffic jam that would make me late for a very important meeting. And instead of getting stressed out, I said, Lord, there must be something good that's going to come out of this. Is it some person I need to be aware of that I need to talk to? Uh, why have you slowed me down? It's almost like unwrapping a Christmas present. I was anticipating the good that God was going to bring uh, out of this. 
James 1.5 is another promise. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So do you give up when a duty is too tough, or do you ask for wisdom and then tackle that duty with the confidence that God will answer? Don't wait for the wisdom before you obey. God's called you to obey. You say, Lord, as I obey, would you, would you step into this and help me uh, figure this out? And God comes through as we step forth in faith, in obedience, and he gives the wisdom that is needed. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when Satan throws those sins into your face to try to discourage you, you throw them right back at Satan. You say, nope, get out of here. Jesus said, all unrighteousness has been cleansed from me. I believe that. My slate is white clean. I'm now going to concentrate on the duties of a washed and set-apart saint. Let me give you one more promise, and we'll test our faith on this one. Malachi 3.10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now, I know you guys all tithe, but do you anticipate the blessings that come from this? Now, obviously, this is an action itself, but here's some of the ways that you can anticipate that God's going to follow through on that promise. You start adjusting your budget and saying, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the ways in which you will uh, bless me in this. We're going to uh, start uh, making adjustments in the way that we think about the future, what kinds of things we're going to do. Those are not just actions of obedience. Those are actions preparing yourself for God's answer. Well, maybe I'll give you one more promise. Joshua 1.8, the first promise given in Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, faith is going to say, well, if that's the case, I'm going to start memorizing Scripture and meditating on Scripture because I want to prosper in absolutely everything that I do. And so you're preparing yourself for that blessing. I think you get the point. God tests the genuineness of our faith in these five ways. Let me repeat them. Time test. It was just uh, only seven days, but it reveals how deeply we believe God's promise. The religious test reveals whether we really believe 2 Corinthians 1.20, which says, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. So no promise is fulfilled in our lives apart from Jesus. Okay? If that's the case, we need to include Jesus in our gardening, our budgeting, our intimacy, our hunting, everything else we do. The homework or, homework or action test reveals whether we're willing to do God's homework regardless of how difficult it may be. Doing the homework reveals whether we're really committed to victory through grace. The embarrassment test reveals whether your faith is in man or whether your faith is in God. The preparedness test anticipates an answer, prepares baskets to receive the blessings of heaven. And then finally, we get to the promised result of faith. Verse 5 ends by saying, Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So what was straight before them, before the promise was fulfilled? Well, there was nothing straight before them except impenetrable walls, right? Super high walls, solid walls. But faith knew that despite what their eyes saw right now, they were going to go right through those walls. God would bring them down. Nothing 
was too hard for them because God promised a miracle. Now, he's not promised you that you're going to uh, necessarily take down, uh, you know, city council. <laughs> um, but he has given you a lot of promises that you can claim that will require a miracle. Our God is a God of miracles. And so faith expects that God will follow through on miracles. And we ourselves have seen many, many miracles in our lives. And we'd love to have every member of our church anticipate miracles and begin to see miracles in their lives. He's not going to give miracles if you don't believe in miracles, period. Okay? But let me ask a question. Why were they immediately to go forward and penetrate the city? It was to do their job of fighting. Miracles and responsibilities go hand in hand. Normally, God doesn't do your chores for you. He expects you to do your chores. Just saying. He may provide miraculously, but he still expects you to do what you can. And we saw that earlier. Faith is responsible. It acts, it works, it fights for things. That's why we have preparedness meetings. And so God gives them the opportunity to fight and for proof that they did indeed fight. Let me read Joshua 24, 11. Then you went over the Jordan, came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. So it was not just an easy pickings. They had to fight. They had their responsibilities. So I think you can see these five verses have a lot that they can teach you. And my final admonition is to walk by faith. Walk by a true biblical faith. Amen. Father, thank you for the challenges of your word. And I pray that we would take them on. That we would uh, successfully pass these tests of faith. That we would press more and more into the promises you have given in your scripture and that we would saturate ourselves so with your scriptures that we would be filled with faith and hope for the future, whatever are the things that Satan tries to discourage us with. Bless this, your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.